You know, I feel like uh, coming up here and singing it's the most wonderful time of the year because it is here at Oldham Lane for me anyway. Preacher training camp kicks off today. We have Shine coming up. We have VBS in between, SOS this summer. It's a great time here at Oldham Lane. Love summers here. Preacher training camp, though, kicks off today. Remind our young men to be here at 4 o'clock in the new building as we kind of get everything set up and ready to go for the week. Uh, we have Wes McAdams that's going to be with us tonight, and uh, Wayne Roberts will be in who kind of takes care of our hermeneutics all week, and if you don't know what that is, ask Wayne tonight. He will let you know. Um, we have some of our young men that are already here. Finn Bergbauer from Stillwater, Oklahoma is here. Caleb Hahn, one of our campers from Lake Houston, and so we're glad to have them uh, with us. Jake Sutton, who's going to be teaching us tomorrow all the way from Moultrie, Georgia. It's good to have him with us, and other guys will be rolling in today and through the week as they teach and preach to us. It's an exciting time. And uh, on Sunday next week, you'll have two of our young men here showing you what they've learned and kind of, uh, you know, taking over my spot. And then the rest of them will be sent out to other churches in our area where they will preach as well. So please pray for that effort this week. You know, there was a, a young boy who was having trouble in math. No, it wasn't me. This young boy was struggling with arithmetic, and his parents did everything they could to help him. They got him a tutor, they talked to the teacher, they helped him with his homework, but nothing seemed to aid him in doing better at math. So they thought maybe it would be better to enroll him in a private uh, Catholic school, a parochial school, or maybe the smaller class numbers, maybe the no-nonsense nuns would help him to learn math. And after the first day, the parents already noticed a big difference. There was a huge change just in his attitude. And after that first semester, he scored an A-plus in math. And his parents were ecstatic, of course, but they were also curious. And so they sat him down and they said, you know, son, we just want to know what made the difference. Was it the nuns? Was it the smaller class size? And the young boy, in all the innocence and purity of a child, said, you know, I never really cared much for math. When I walked into that school that first day and saw that guy nailed to a plus sign, I knew they meant business. You know, in God's divine arithmetic, one plus one equals one. We often think of discipleship like me and Jesus or me plus Jesus equals the two of us. But that's not how discipleship works. When it comes to being a follower of Jesus, when it comes to being a disciple, one plus one equals one. It's me and Jesus equals Jesus. And this equation is written in long form in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 24, which reads, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus meant business when laying down the conditions for being a disciple. This higher math involves subtraction, not addition. This isn't about adding Jesus to my life. This is about Jesus becoming my life. And you know, Paul nailed it in Galatians 2.20 when he wrote, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's subtraction, not addition. But listen to what else Paul says. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, 
is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Did you notice that? When Christ, who is our life. This isn't about him being a part of my life or a part of my existence. It's about him being the whole of my existence. Too many times we see Jesus as an additive. I get baptized, and that's my life insurance policy. That is my fire insurance policy. I've been baptized, now I don't go to hell. But there's so much more to discipleship than that. Like we've said over and over again, you are never finished obeying the gospel. You don't obey the gospel one time. You continue to obey the gospel the rest of your life here on earth. When it comes to being a Christian, I think the problem often is that we see Jesus as an additive. We see them, him as something that we add to our lives and not something that uh, he is the whole of our existence. We love Jesus. We want to serve Jesus. But we don't see him as all-consuming. Maybe we're not all in or completely invested because we don't understand the concept of being a bond slave or a bond servant as presented in Scripture. It's not about just filling a pew once a week. Carrying a cross is very different than giving homage to Jesus. It's at least in part the reason why we fail at, a, at, at evangelism and why church attendance maybe isn't what it should be is because we don't truly understand what it means to carry a cross. Here's why I bring all this up. Comfortable Christians will never turn the world upside down. They just won't. The world needs to be upset. And Christians need to be the ones doing the upsetting. Stay with me on this. Chapter 17 of Acts, starting in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as his, was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. I want you to think about the most effective advertising slogans of all time. Finger licking good, uh, snap, crackle, and pop, just do it, good to the last drop. Of course, many years ago, it was Wendy's who took the advertising world by storm with Where's the Beef? Remember that one? Here's a slogan for you. Turning the world upside down since A.D. 33. Okay, maybe that's not a slogan for the church, but maybe it could be, right? Or maybe not. Because are we really turning the world upside down? I mean, are Christians really upsetting the world nowadays? I mean, if we're being honest. 
I realize that Christianity is not a persecuted religion, at least not the way it was in the first century. I realize that we live in, in a different time and a different era. I realize that things are different. In our own little neck of the woods here, we not only live in the Bible Belt, we live on the buckle of the Bible Belt. And so Christianity is something that is very common in our, our little neck of the woods here. This is a very spiritual community. But I think all too often, we as Christians get comfortable. We go along with the world rather than upsetting the world. Many people see no problem with the world around them. Many churches, in fact, have decided that, you know, why change what the world is doing? Let's just go along in order to be more appealing, perhaps, in order to gain a following. Sadly, it's not been all progression from the first century. In fact, it's been a digression in many ways. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to be a, a cookie-cutter church. I don't care about being like everyone around me, certainly not the world. In fact, I would resist that with everything I have. And I don't want Oldham Lane to be a church that goes the way of comfortability. I have no desire to be a church filled with comfortable Christians. Give me 20 mega-Christians on fire for God, over a 1,000 that just fill a pew every Sunday. I don't care, and you shouldn't either, one iota about being politically correct. Paul didn't care about that. Jesus didn't care about that. In fact, if you're going to be a Christian in this century, it probably demands that you are not all that PC. Here's what I do want. I want Oldham Lane to be a disruptive church. I want us to be a church that is disruptive and offensive. And you think to yourself, well, Chris, I don't know that I can get on board with that. That's the church I grew up in. I don't want to be that church. I came to Oldham Lane because I was at a church that drew the circle so small you couldn't even stand in it. I left a church that stood up so straight it, fall, it fell over. No, listen to me. Stay with me on this because we're going to get somewhere. You know based on sermons before, I'm not advocating something that is compassionless and, and all that. But here's the deal. The gospel's offensive. Even if we are not offensive ourselves, even when we present the truth in love, we will be disruptive and we will be offensive simply because we are doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is preaching the truth in love, sharing the gospel. None of us should seek to give people a concussion because we beat them over the head with a Bible. None of us should be seeking to hammer people over and over again, void of love and compassion. In fact, we should be quite the opposite of that. As we said a couple of weeks ago, folks, if everyone hates us, something is wrong with our approach. If everyone loves us, something's wrong with our approach. Because to be a New Testament Christian, to be people of the gospel, sharing the gospel, we're going to be offensive. We're going to disrupt the world around us. And I'm here to tell you this morning, that's not a bad thing. When the gospel comes to your church, when the gospel comes to your community, when the gospel comes to your life, it upsets some things, doesn't it? It certainly disrupts things. That's what Paul and Silas were doing. They were disrupting Satan's apple cart. They were disrupting the Jewish leadership. They were disrupting the entire religious system. And isn't it interesting that the jealous Jews 
shout this derogatory message meant to demean Paul and Silas and their efforts when in fact it was a great compliment. Wouldn't you like to be known as someone who's turning the world upside down for the sake of the gospel? As a church, wouldn't it be great to be known as a church family that was making a difference in our community by disrupting the flow of the world and by turning it upside down? Because there are people who live and die and no one ever even knew they existed. There are Christians who, who live and, and, and leave this earth and, and never make any kind of impact whatsoever. Paul and Silas were turning the world upside down. And that shouldn't surprise us because you can look through Scripture and you can find over and over again people that were used by God to make waves. God always used individuals to throw the world into chaos. People who upset the system by confronting the system and the sinners who make up the system. Will you be that type of person? Will you be the type of Christian that makes waves? Will you share the gospel at work? Well, I don't really like talking about religion at work. That tends to get me in trouble. Will you share the gospel with that family member who is always resistant and it really doesn't seem to care much about church or God? And you say, well, that's not always a good idea. That tends to put a damper on things at family reunions. Will you share the gospel with your neighbor? Well, he's an atheist, so I don't think he'd be very receptive. Understand what is at stake here. There are eternal consequences involved by us imposing this, this self-imposed gag order. We are saying that their soul does not care that, we don't care that much about their soul. We're not that concerned about their soul. Understand what is at stake here. This is eternal. We have folks that are heading directly toward an eternity spent away from the Heavenly Father. That should concern us. Plus, how can we neglect our number one responsibility as Christians? You know what that is, to share the gospel, right? Saved people save people. Notice what Paul says. I believe his words echo loud and clear, Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I don't think any of us here would say that we are ashamed of the gospel. But I think sometimes indirectly we can show shame by simply refusing to share it in certain situations. The gospel has changed our lives. It has completely changed who we are. And it can change other people's lives. But only if we're willing to share that message. Christians become Christians because of other Christians. Converted sinners make the best preachers, don't they? The world needs to be turned upside down. Last year alone, approximately 43 million abortions in this country. We have a movement that's been started called Shout Your Abortion, where, where women proudly advocate for abortion and celebrate the murder of the unborn. We live in a culture where an 11-year-old boy is permitted to dress and drag and dance in an adult gay bar. We live in a culture where porn sites receive more traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter each month combined. 
It's estimated that the porn industry is worth $97 billion. If you were to take that money and divide it up, you could feed 4.8 billion people per day. We live in a world where many people want to ignore basic biology and say that gender is a social construct. We live in a world where the owner of a bakery has been taken to court not once but twice for politely refusing the first time to bake a cake for a gay wedding and the second time for declining to bake a cake for uh, a man's gender transition. We live in a world where one state has introduced a bill that would make it illegal, a criminal offense to address a transgender individual by the wrong pronoun. That's the world we live in. And we can spit venom, and we can fight this fight on the picket lines and all of that. But I'll tell you one thing we need to be doing. We need to be a light. We need to be spreading the gospel. We need to be doing whatever is possible to preach the truth and love and to show folks that there is a different way. Will all of them be receptive? Absolutely not. But you can't excuse your efforts by saying that none of them would be receptive. In a world that seems to discover new ways every day to be offended, we're going to be offenders. We just are. Not because we want to be, but because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Jesus was offensive. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, it draws a line in the sand. It just does. Because although it is good news, it's bad news before it's good news. Is it not? Someone who is lost in sin and who is confronted with the gospel is going to hear bad news before they hear good news, right? It's kind of like that person that comes to you and says, well, I've got good news and bad news. And if you're like me, I say, well, I want the bad news first. Let's get that out of the way. Well, the bad news is you're going to hell. You are lost in your sins and you have no hope. But the good news is you don't have to go to hell. The good news is that God sacrificed his only begotten son for you. Not when you were good enough, but when you were shaking your fist in open defiance towards God, when you were rebellious before God, that's when he sent his son. And the only way you can go to hell is by stepping over the cross of Christ. So as long as you are drawing a breath in your lungs, you have the hope of eternity spent with the Heavenly Father. That's great news. But you've got to confront the bad news first. You are a sinner in need of salvation. As Paul said, you are dead in your trespasses. But you don't have to be. You can be raised to a new life. You know, I'm blessed with uh, many preacher friends like Jake. And, and there are many times that I get together with these friends and we talk and we share, um, you know, about how our work is going. And, and it seems like we always come to war stories where preachers talk about the things that went on in their church or things that they're dealing with right now, and they talk about some of the difficulties, the trials and tribulations of preaching. And I always think to myself, as I've told you before, I must have been in a bubble because I don't really have any war stories to share. Maybe I hadn't been doing it long enough either. But I love listening to these men and talking about you know, the wisdom and how they handled certain situations. And it wasn't long ago I was talking with some preacher friends, and one of them said, you know, there was a time when men used to carry Velcro wallets. Some of y'all remember that, maybe. And there was a church where this gentleman, who is a preacher friend of mine, was working, where when the fruit of the vine was passed around during the Lord's Supper, that it was quite a ruckus when you'd hear the men opening up their Velcro wallets to get money out for the contribution. 
It was pretty distracting because it seemed like all the men in unison were opening up their Velcro wallets. And so this church decided, well, we're going to have the contribution before the Lord's Supper and eliminate all that. One gentleman got pretty irate. You can't take the contribution before the Lord's Supper. Don't you know that, right? First opinions, you can't do that. Another was telling me about a time when some Americans went overseas to observe a, a mission work that they were involved in. And this church gave the contribution at the very end of service. As they walked out, they dropped it in the collection plate. And some of those Americans that went over there were very irate. That's not how you're supposed to do it, right? My point is, we can get our dander up about some things. We've got a lot of convictions about some stuff, don't we? Unfortunately, they're convictions about things that don't matter. There's one church that decided it would be hip and cool that... When you answered the invitation, we'll just give you the microphone and you can confess your sins before the congregation. This one lady came forward one Sunday morning. She took the microphone and confessed that she had been having an affair for several months with a gentleman. And she named his name and he was sitting in the audience with his wife and children who had no idea. That backfired. You know, we have some conviction about some things and we show compassion about some things, but many times it's misplaced. I am not here to tell you this morning that we should seek to be an offensive people or a disruptive people from the standpoint that we beat people over the head. Or, you know, I've said it before, when you're a hammer, everyone looks like a nail, and you know Christians like that, and that's not fair to people. That's not going to usually bring people to Christ. We have to be a people of conviction and compassion about both. Here's a mathematical equation for you as well. Conviction plus compassion equals the character of Christ. All too often, we're about one or the other. Like we said a couple of weeks ago, we should be about grace and truth, but a lot of times we're about grace or truth. We pick one or the other. And so we're imbalanced. And Paul spoke about this imbalance. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he said, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I have the gift of pro- if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. You can be straight as a gun barrel doctrinally, but empty as a gun barrel spiritually. Just because you're right doesn't mean you're right. Does that make sense? You can stand up and you can stick your chest out and say, I have the truth and I am convicted. But if you have not love, what good is it? There's two aspects here that go together, like peanut butter and jelly or salt and pepper. Conviction and compassion, grace and truth. And both of them should be emulated by us. Both of them should be a part of the fabric of our character. Don't be so dedicated to a religion or tradition that you lose sight of the motivation. You can be right doctrinally, but wrong devotionally. I think Paul's message can really be summed up this way. Do right things with the right heart. Something that Jesus tried to get across over and over again to the religious elite because the Pharisees felt that they were right, but they didn't love the people that Jesus loved. And that was the problem. You see, our culture has has accepted two big lies. Here they are. Number one, if you disagree with someone, you must hate them. Right? That's our culture nowadays. And number two, to love someone means that you agree with everything they think and do. And both of these are completely and totally false. 
And our world is bought in hook, line, and sinker. In other words, you must compromise conviction to be compassionate or vice versa. Again, these are monumental fallacies that are dispelled by the character of Jesus. The character of Jesus, not so much the character of Christians sometimes. We can fall into the trap and we can perpetuate these lies. And in fact, I see it quite often on Facebook and on social media. Conviction plus compassion. I want you to notice Paul's method of operation in Acts chapter 17, where we read from a moment ago. Reason, explain, prove, proclaim. Paul wasn't seeking purposely to be offensive or disruptive. The word reasoned here indicates dialogue. In other words, Paul presented the truth and then invited questions and challenges from those people who were listening. He walked them through the scriptures, which at that time was the Old Testament. What if you had the opportunity to sit down with someone who was Jewish and study the Bible with them? How would you deal with that? You know, understand that they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Don't believe that uh, if they've even read the New Testament, they don't put a lot of stock into that. So where would you go? I think I would start by connecting dots, right? By taking Jesus and showing his identity in the Old Testament. Because all the prophets, they pointed to this coming Messiah, Jesus, matches the fingerprint of who they were talking about. Is that not what Paul did? You turn to Isaiah 53, you walk them through that chapter. Paul reasoned with these people. He didn't expect them to be on his level right away. He didn't accost them by saying, you ignorant fools, you're dumb as a hammer. He didn't do any of that. He simply presented and reasoned with them. He didn't label them as heretics when they had a question. He explained things and gave evidence to back up his claim. Explained here means to open. It's actually the same word that's found in Luke 24, 31, when our Lord opened the eyes of those men who were walking down the road to Emmaus. Same word. To give evidence means to place before or alongside. So Paul would take one piece of Scripture, place it alongside another to support and to prove his point. But above all, Paul carried out his mission by proclaiming the gospel. But although he was dealing with some pretty stubborn and irate individuals, he didn't let the people affect his attitude and the way that he, the way he directed the gospel towards them, the way he presented the facts. You see, sometimes we get off base because we want to win an argument. We are so bent on being right that it comes out wrong. Do you care about winning an argument or do you care about winning a soul? Because when your number one goal is to win the soul, then your frustration and your anger and your irritation kind of take a back seat, right? And compassion comes to the forefront. Skip down to verses 16 and following. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So I want you to imagine some enlightened individual looking down his nose at Paul and thinking, yeah, what do you have to teach us? Acting as if Paul is some uneducated, unintelligent dolt who doesn't measure up. I get the feeling that's kind of what Paul is dealing with here. He was dealing with very educated, extremely religious, but biblically illiterate people. How do you handle people like that? I'd get frustrated. It would probably make me angry. But here's what Paul did. He begins with God. Do you notice that? He begins with God. You can read the rest of Acts 17 to see Paul's entire approach and introducing them to the one true God. But Paul doesn't assume that they know anything. We sometimes make the mistake of assuming that someone who really has no knowledge of of the Creator or of church or anything like that, that they should come in and be on our level. Come in, learn how we are, be like we are, act like we are, and then maybe we'll baptize you. Paul doesn't assume that these people know anything. You know, we spit out words like redemption and justification and just assume that people know what that means when they don't necessarily. Or maybe they know the words, but they don't have the proper concept. Notice the big ideas from what Paul says here. God is not made, but is the maker. God is creator and sustainer. God has made us to long for him. You can no longer claim ignorance. Judgment is coming. Christ is the answer. I mean, that's it in a nutshell, and that's really all you need to know, is it not? If you're speaking to people and you're taking them where they're at, like Paul did, this is really what they need to know. And what was the response to the message? Well, some sneered. Some didn't like what Paul had to say. Others did. Some wanted to hear more while others wanted for Paul to do nothing but be quiet. And that's the nature of the gospel. It's offensive to some. It's so disruptive to others that they change their life. They change their course. Some will be so offended that they will be turned off. And others will be so disrupted that they will be turned on to what Christ, what God has to say through his word. Our job is not to force the outcome. Our job is to simply be disruptive. It's not our job to make the gospel acceptable. It's our job to make the gospel accessible. In 2008, there was the mayor of a small village in southwest France who faced a major dilemma. His village was running out of room. Not because of a population explosion, but because there was no room to bury the dead. The cemetery was full. And so he tried to buy land adjacent to his town, but to no avail. No one would sell. There was no room to bury any more dead. And so this mayor did what a lot of politicians would do. He passed a law. And the ordinance read in part like this. All persons not having a plot in the cemetery and wishing to be buried are forbidden from dying in the parish. Offenders will be severely punished. (laughs) Folks, you and I both know that we can't keep people from dying. We can, however, show conviction and compassion as we seek to meet their most desperate need. Look, 
Churches that only think in terms of Sunday or a building are going to die. They just are. We've got to thank souls the other 165 hours of the week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day and for this opportunity to be together. We love our church family and we pray, God, that we seek to be pleasing to you in everything that we do. And among that, that effort, we pray that we be people who live out the gospel each and every day and understand that by living the gospel means that we are to share it. May we be a people of conviction and compassion and never compromise. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and sending your son. Please bless our efforts, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning and you're ready to obey, we'd love to, we'd love to assist you in that this morning. If you haven't been obeying the gospel, rather you've been living as, you know, one time was good enough, maybe you need the prayers and support of this church family. Maybe you're ready to start by studying the Bible with someone. We certainly would love to do that as well. Oldham Lane is seeking to be a church family that loves on one another and loves the lost. Join us in that effort. And if you have a need that we can help you with, Don's going to lead us in a song. Please come now as we stand and as we sing.